Thanks very much. It's great to worship the Lord, isn't it? Good morning, church. We are the brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to bring a message and I've called it simply the wedding. And it is the first miracle that Jesus did, the very first thing that he did when he started his ministry. And of course it's, the, it's about the wedding at Cana. So just before we start reading the scriptures, I'd just like to pray that, that our hearts will be prepared to receive God's word. Father, I just come to you now in Jesus' name and Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you will be with us and that you will reveal to us your word, Lord, that you will unfold it for us and, and show us what you want to say to our hearts to prepare us for eternity. Father, I ask for your anointing upon the congregation, upon everything that happens here, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Well, let's turn to uh, the Gospel of John. Chapter 2. Now, the Gospel of John begins with the creation and um, just, I'll just quickly turn there, chapter 1. <clears throat> it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So here we see a reference back to the creation and uh, this is just how John starts his gospel and basically the wedding at Cana and the introduction to Jesus is bringing us back to the fall. It's telling us that Jesus has come into the world to fix something up. And the very first miracle that he performs is at a wedding. Now the wedding really is what Jesus came to do. We are the bride of Christ. And we are headed towards a wedding. We're all going to be at a wedding. We are the bride. I know that's a bit hard as a bloke thinking of yourself as the bride but the union here is not a physical union, it's a spiritual union. We are going to become one with Christ Jesus in spirit. We will be one with him. We will be joined and united together with Christ. How good is that? That's amazing, isn't it? So here what happens is Jesus has not quite yet started his ministry and 
you know, John opens up with this thing about the Word becoming, uh, you know, flesh and the, it's all about the incarnation. And so Jesus has come as the Son of Man and as the Son of God. And quite often he referred to himself as the Son of Man because that is the greater miracle. He already is God. So he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And the Word has become flesh. And he is the light and the life and he is the Lamb of God. So he is the final, complete, perfect sacrifice to remove our sins so that we can then have relationship with him again. So the, the picture is, is that in the garden we broke fellowship with God. We sinned, we were divorced from him. But now he has come back to call us his bride and to bring us into a relationship with himself. How beautiful is that? So we're going to be one with Christ. Now let's have a look at chapter 2 and verses from verse 1 in John. We see here, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So the third day is just referring to Tuesday. You know, I used to get a bit confused about that sometimes, but it just means it's a Tuesday. Now the reason why Tuesday was a good day for a wedding was because it gave three days to travel from the Sabbath because you weren't allowed to do work on the Sabbath. So after the Sabbath you could start travelling and go to a wedding. So it was a good time of week to have a wedding. And so this wedding at Cana was on a Tuesday. Now Mary is forcing an issue here and this is, this is almost like uh, you know, Eve saying, you know, reveal yourself, show who you are. That's what this is about. She, is, she knows in her heart what Jesus is all about. She, she remembers all the prophecies, she remembers all the things that have happened, it's a miraculous birth, all of those things. And, uh, you know, her, her, the... Uh, Elizabeth, you know, and John the Baptist and the baby leaping, John leaping in the womb when, she, when uh, Elizabeth heard Mary's voice and, you know, all of these things have all taken pl- place and she's stored them up and kept them in her heart as treasures and she's waiting to see him reveal who he is. She knows who he is. The rest of the family know who he is and they're all waiting for him to begin his ministry. Basically that ministry was to crush the serpent's head and he would bruise his heel in doing so. This was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So this is, this is what this is all coming to. It's coming to this place of a fulfilling of that prophecy from Genesis chapter 3. And Mary is kind of like Eve, you know, now, see, Eve thought it was going to be her son 
Well, it was, but it was many generations down. (laughs) And now finally that generation is there and it's Mary, it's her son. He is the seed that will bring us redemption. So she's forcing an Eve, uh, uh, an issue as Eve, in a sense as Eve. And you see, all around would have been the concept that uh, Jesus was going to be like King David. So you could imagine that the Jewish thought at this time would be that if Jesus revealed who he was, then all the hierarchy would come around and have a great feast and crowning king of Israel. (laughs) Just like David was at Hebron. You remember reading about that? Where they all come together and there's this great feast for days and the sacrifices and they crowned David king of Israel. It was a magnificent time. Well, see, they believed that the Messiah was going to come in the same way that David did. So they're thinking in this kind of, this thought that reveal yourself and then, you know, you will be crowned king, we will overthrow the Roman Empire and everything will be good. (laughs) That's what they were thinking. That was the Jewish mind, you see. And, of course, the scriptures kind of confused them because they, they see the that there's the Messiah to come who would be king forever and he would, his, his reign would never end, you see. But at the same time, they saw in the Scriptures the suffering servant. They didn't know that they were the same person. So they separated them out. And they do this with, um, you know, the first and second coming as well. That's in the Scripture. It's all, all written together as one event but they're separated out. And so nobody really understood what Jesus came to do. They, weren't, they hadn't arrived at that yet. After about three and a half years' ministry and the death, burial and resurrection, they finally got it. The penny dropped and they began to preach the gospel. And then we entered into the, Gentile, uh, the time of the Gentiles or the, 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 the church age. Okay, so here in these first few verses we see that, um, you know, he says, my hour has not come. That's referring to the crucifixion. That is a revealing of the glory of God that he has come to make a sacrifice that would remove our sins. How good is that? Isn't that beautiful? We have the final sacrifice arriving here. (coughs) Whatever he says, do it. Obedience always brings joy. Let's have a look at John chapter 15. Just quickly, we're going to look at a few scriptures this morning. Yeah, it is good, I love it. We've got to base everything on the scripture. John chapter 15, verse 9, it says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You see, so if we obey his commands, if we abide, abide in his love, then that joy will be in us. There's no joy like knowing that you're right with God. 
no joy like it. Doesn't matter what's going on around you. Your world can be falling apart. But if you know that you are right before your God, there is a joy in there. An absolute joy that cannot be explained. You see, we have to shift our focus from a worldly philosophy to a biblical one. That's what we have to do. That's part of the salvation process. In my message this morning, I'm going to show you that we are saved, we're being saved and we will be saved. How good is that? You see? That's what we have to understand. It's not just a once-off, oh, I've got my ticket, I'm going to come into heaven now, goody. That's not what it's about. (laughs) And why are we going to heaven? Oh, because there's streets paved with gold and there's mansions. No, that's not what it's about. It's because I want to be with my Lord. I want to be with Jesus. You see? That's beautiful. Let's have a look in chapter 2 again and verse 6. It says, Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So this is the ultimate manifestation of man. Six is in biblical, in Bible numerics, is the number of man. So here there's six earthen jars or, or, or made of stone or earth. And this is, this is what man is. Man is made out of the earth. Handful of dirt. God fashions him in his own image and then breathes in him the spirit of life. <coughs> so here... The ultimate manifestation, of course, of man is 666, three times. Okay? But here there's just one six. It's talking about man. We're not talking about the Antichrist. So man is represented in these six earthen jars. And each one has a different capacity. They range from 20 to 30 gallons of water. So... Let's have a quick look at Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. It says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, We are the clay and you our potter and all we are the work of your hand. So here, God, we're like clay, we're like that earthen vessel and he's the potter, he moulds us and shapes us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's have a look there. The same concept is there as well, of course. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now this is really interesting because you cannot share in God's glory. He won't have that. He won't tolerate that at all, you see. 
His power has to be seen for what it is. His power, not our power. So God has chosen us, these earthen vessels, to put his spirit in, to put his life in, his light in, his truth in, so that when it's manifest in us, it's seen that it is from God, it's not from us. You see, we cannot do miracles and salvation is a miracle. It's the greatest miracle. It really is. The whole of scripture from Genesis to the Revelation is all about salvation. That's it. The whole 66 books is God's dealings with humanity bringing them out of their fallen state to salvation. That's what the whole book is about. It is the greatest miracle. And everything Jesus did points towards that miracle of salvation and towards what he was going to do. So all the other miracles that he performs as God, not as a man anointed, he is God. God is the only one that has authority to forgive sin, you see. So Jesus walked here as a man, but he also walked here as God, most high. You see, some people try to take that away from him and say that, no, no, anybody could have done what he did. No, that's not true. We can't do miracles. Only God can do miracles, you see. And salvation is a miracle. The process of salvation is a miracle. The lead up to salvation is miraculous. All the things that happened in my life that led me to Jesus were all miracles. Absolute miracles. Till I got to a point where I could repent of my sin and humble myself before God. In another place, Jesus says that unless you become as a little child, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't see it. It's a reference to pride, It's a reference to putting on humility. Children are humble. There's a humility about them. They don't think of themselves more highly than they ought, usually. You see, we cannot come to God with anything of ourselves. We are worth nothing. And without him, we can do nothing. (laughs) Isn't that good to know? (laughs) That is good to know. Without him, we can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. If you bring something to God that's of your own doing, it's worthless to him. It's like filthy rags. That's what our righteousness is. Filthy rags. They're the rags that they would bind up leprosy with. Filthy rags. Nothing. We need him totally, you see. So here what's happening is he's demonstrating what he wants to do. The first miracle is, well, basically, I'm going to take a bride and I'm going to marry that bride. (laughs) So in verse 7 it says, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. So water is always a type of the word. 
we must have the Word of God. We must be filled with the Word of God. Don't ever stop reading it. If you stop reading the Scriptures, immediately you're going backwards. Immediately. The moment you stop reading the Word of God, you begin backsliding because the world is all around us, you see, and it's preaching a message to us. It does it through radio, music, television, newspapers, magazines. They're all preaching a message and that message is a world without God. It's a vain imagination. That's what they're preaching at us all the time. They're pretending that there is no God and they make up all kinds of stories about how we got here from monkeys or whatever. They make up all sorts of stories about why we do things the way we do them, like psychology, you see. So they're all pretending that there is no God. We know that there is a God. And so do they. But they hate God. They're God-haters. So as soon as you stop reading the Scripture, you immediately start falling away. You see, the water gets used up and you begin to go backwards and something else goes in. It's another message. So here what happens is, is the servants fill the water pots with water to the brim which is the Word of God. We must drink in the Word of God daily, every day. Take in the Word of God. Make sure you have a time where you're reading the Scriptures every day. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll get another picture of this. Ephesians chapter 5 and from verse 25 it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, that's a big ask, isn't it? (laughs) Because Jesus died on a cross, you see. He sacrificed everything. Everything. He died. And here it's commanding us to, do, to be husbands like this, you see. Like, and this is what Jesus has done for us. So where to follow the example, husbands? Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That, this is, this is why, look, this is why. He says, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is God's plan for the church, is to wash us with the water of the word, to wash us with the word that we would become holy without spot or blemish, that he could present us to himself as a holy bride. That's what Jesus is doing. 
in our lives. That basically comes down to pure doctrine, that we must understand the Scriptures and have pure doctrine, that we are washed clean with His Word. In that, and that is a preparation for the marriage, for the union with God, that we would be one with Him. Because sin can't be near Him, spot or blemish can't be near Him, He has to prepare us for eternity with Himself. Back in John chapter 2, from verse 8, it says, And He said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. (coughs) This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So in another place it says it's the first of his miracles, but it manifests his glory. What's that all about? It's saying... This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to show you what his purpose is, why he has come. You see, wine represents joy. Joy comes from obeying God. Joy comes from having the Spirit of God which gives you an ability to obey the Word of God. So you've got to be filled up with the Word of God and then you'll have the Spirit of God which gives you an ability to obey the word which brings a joy. That's what wine does, it brings a joy. And in this case, they had the best wine last. And that's what we get, we get the best wine last. The first covenant was very hard, we couldn't do it, it was impossible. So the spirit is what empowers you to obey God's commands. In Ephesians chapter 5 again, let's go back there. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17. It says, Therefore do not be unwise but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting one to another in the fear of God. So here he's he's saying don't drink wine literally and be drunk. That leads to debauchery, dissipation, which is talking about a wasted life where you waste everything that you are and have 
on just pleasure and, and seeking things that will never come to pass. It's just a waste of life. And so he's saying, don't do that, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit and then you'll have an ability to be obedient to God. See, in John, let's turn to John chapter 3, the next chapter, and it says um, from verse 5, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So here he's saying that you must be born of two things. He says the water and the Spirit. The water is always the Word of God. Always. That's, that's the typology all throughout Scripture. Water is the Word of God. But it must be water. These pots were ceremonial pots for ceremonial cleansing. They put clear water in there. That means pure doctrine, pure word of God, not muddied water, you know, with falsities in it, impurities. That's no good. We don't want to obey that. So here he's saying that you must be born again, you must be born of the word of God or the water and the spirit of God. Now, if you have just one of these, you're going to be in serious trouble. If you have just the Word of God and you do not have the Spirit of God, you will be involved in legalism. You'll be going back to Judaism and all different forms of it and trying to obey all the do's and don'ts and trying to create a righteousness of your own making and all of that in God's eyes will be as filthy rags and you'll just waste your life and you will not achieve salvation. You will not enter the kingdom of God. You will be full of pride and arrogance because of all the great things that you've done and achieved and you will not be able to approach God. <laughs> That's a pretty sad story, isn't it? That's the story of religion, man-made religion. So if you just have the word of God, that amounts to legalism. And then there are those who just want the spirit of God, they don't want the word of God. And where they end up is in mysticism. You see, everything's mystical. You know, spiritualise all the scriptures and spiritualise everything and they come up with all sorts of silly nonsense and just crazy stuff. And in the end, they end up just worshipping demons and following the promptings of the kingdom of darkness. That's what they do. That's where that ends up. Sadly, a great portion of the Pentecostal movement went that way. They've thrown the word of God out and gone to the spiritus. That's what that's all about. So what we need is both. Jesus said this. He said you must be born of the water and the word. You must have both or you cannot be saved. How beautiful is that? So when we repent of our sins and we receive Jesus as our Saviour, then we're saved. But then we have to make him Lord. And that 
is a process that happens for the rest of our life here. That's the struggle bit. Okay? So, first off, we're saved. We're saved in spirit. Now, I'll just read this, um, this bit of information about Jewish weddings. Okay? <clears throat> this comes from the One New Man Bible. It gives a lot of Hebrew um, context to, to the scripture. It says, um, The wedding in Yeshua's day, that's Jesus, began with an agreement between the bride and groom, like engagement today. At the time of this agreement, agreement a formal document called a ketubah was signed. The ketubah was in, included a price to be paid for the bride. At that time, the couple was considered to be married, even though the marriage was not consummated. The groom then prepared a place, usually on family property, for the couple and, then, and when his father approved of the apartment or house, the son would come for his bride and the wedding ceremony would take place. Neither bride nor groom knew when the father would say it was good enough. So they both needed to be ready as the finishing was about done. Then the groom would go for the bride, often at night, and she would have to be ready. The guests too would be notified at the last minute. The party began with the ceremony and then the party lasted a whole week, seven days. Immediately after the ceremony, the bride and groom retired to the place he had prepared and the friend of the groom the best man stood by the door. When the marriage had been consummated, the groom would shout in his joy and the friend of the groom would relay the good news to the guests. That's how they used to do things. Sounds terrible, doesn't it, to us? <laughs> but that was the culture of the day. Now, let's have a look at chapter 3 and verse 29. It says... This is John, about John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist is the best man. He's the one that brings the message, makes the way for Jesus to come. He's the best man. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. How about that? That's what John the Baptist said. Eh? But before that, look, let's have a look at that. A few verses before it says, well, let's read the whole lot from 22. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he remained with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising in Anan near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptised. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, 
Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptising, and all are coming to him. So these disciples are a bit worried about this Jesus fellow over here, you know, preaching a message and baptising and all this kind of thing. And so they come to John and say, look, what's going on here? What's this all about? I thought you were the main guy. You see? No, no. And then John answers and he said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's talking about the Christ. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's for all of us. We are nothing. (laughs) We can do nothing. We are nothing. We must decrease and Christ increase in us. How good is that? Is that a beautiful message? You see, we've got to have Christ. He is everything. Jesus is everything. Okay, let's have a look in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go back there again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So here, when Jesus came the first time and then he, he paid the price, which was his death, burial and resurrection, he paid the dowry, you see, He's fulfilling a contract of marriage. So he paid the price and then he left us a deposit. It's the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ that's in you. It's a guarantee. It seals the deal. You see? So he's placed within us this deposit of his Spirit. And that gives us the assurance of salvation. And then that spirit begins to work out in us the changes daily so that we are transformed into his likeness or prepared for that time when we become one with him, when we will be presented as a bride without spot or blemish. How good is that? That's what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is. So I looked up this um, contract in the encyclopedia. Well, I better have a look at this. And it's called a ketubah and it's a Hebrew marriage contract. You see, I didn't get through grade three for nothing. 
also spelled ketubah. Um, it's with a different spelling. There's a few different spellings. It's a formal Jewish marriage contract written in Aramaic and guaranteeing a bride certain future rights before her marriage. Since Jewish religious law permits a man to divorce his wife at any time for any reason, the ketubah was introduced in ancient times to protect a woman's right and to make divorce costly, a costly matter for the husband. So there'd be conditions stipulated, a price and all kinds of things would happen to protect them from the way they interpreted the law of Moses. Okay, so this is what Jesus has come to do and he's demonstrating this with this miracle at the wedding at Cana. He's showing you, see, when Jesus does miracles, there's signs and wonders and signs always point to things. So everything he did points to something. It points to his purpose, what he's come to do. If we have quickly a look at Matthew um, chapter 22, let's turn there. Matthew 22. From verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now this is basically the history of Israel (laughs) in a parable, in a short story. History of Israel, here it is in such simple terms. And basically, they've finally, after all of this, they've rejected Christ. He's the last one that God sends. They, he sends the Son in another place that talks about that. But he's the groom. Have a look in uh, John chapter 1, just quickly. Got to get there. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 11. It says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, <clears throat> so this is the same story. So this first part, he prepares the wedding banquet, 
all, everything's ready. He goes and invites all Israel and they just treat it lightly and they kill the prophets and stone them, cut them in half. They do all sorts of horrible things. And then finally they kill the groom, the son that comes. <coughs> and around this time, well, I'll get to that in a minute, hang on. Let's have a look at the next few verses from verse 8. So then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's the time of the Gentiles. Let's go and invite everyone now, you see. So here what's happening is, is the time of the Gentiles or the church age. And this is also referred to in other places as a long night. Now after this time of the Gentiles is coming the 70th week and that 70th week is the great tribulation period talked about in the Revelation and that week is when God is dealing with Israel again. But until that time, the church age is here and all the Gentiles and everyone, the Jews as well, are all invited to come through Christ into the church. And that's the time of the Gentiles. So that's this part of this parable from verse 8 to, to 10. And during that seven-year tribulation period, we will be at a wedding banquet. <laughs> that's what I believe. We will be celebrating our marriage, our union, our oneness with Jesus Christ himself. We will be one with him. How beautiful is that? In the twinkling of an eye, we'll be snatched away, we'll see him and we'll be transformed into his image. The, 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 the process will be complete. We will now not have spot or blemish. We'll be made perfect and we will be that perfect bride for Christ. How good is that? That's what's going to happen. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to start that ketubah, that contract of a marriage with us. He's paid the price. He's given us a de deposit. He's done all of these great things, you see. So we are being prepared for a wedding. Let's have a look in verse 11 here. <clears throat> it says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now this part of the parable is not possible. Can't happen. But it's a parable. He's making a point. He's teaching us something about the kingdom of God. All the parables are about the kingdom of God. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So everyone's called to the wedding. The whole world is called to the wedding. 
everyone, but few were chosen. The ones that are chosen are the ones that have the correct robes, the robes of righteousness, you see. That's what we need to put on, the robe of righteousness. Now, the way we do that, let's have a look. Part of the way we do that is uh, in Acts, uh, sorry, in Romans chapter 12. We have a quick look there. You know the verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he's saying, do not be conformed. Don't stop reading the scriptures because you'll start to fall back and be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let's turn there quickly. Chapter 3, verse 18 It says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord is transforming us into the goodnesses from glory to glory of Christ Jesus. He's making us like himself. Okay. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Here's another parable. Matthew 25. I'll just read it quickly. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. See, so he's been away, he's prepared a place, prepared the mansions. (laughs) Now he's come back to call his bride. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. That's the rapture. Snatched away, beginning of the wedding, the door is shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. 
How beautiful is this? You see, so here this parable is telling us about the process, the preparation for the wedding. It's saying that we have to be prepared for this wedding. We have to have oil. Oil is always speaking of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You only get the anointing of the Holy Spirit by reading his word and praying and spending time with Jesus. Then what happens is the Spirit of God manifests in you and that is an anointing. You will then have life. How beautiful is that? You'll have the life of Jesus Christ in you. Okay. In Philippians chapter 3, let's have a look here just quickly. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this again is a process of salvation. You see, so in spirit you are saved. When you're born again, yes, I'm saved. But then there's this process of being saved daily. That's when you must read the scriptures, you must spend time with the Lord in prayer, you must renew the anointing oil in your life. You've got to have vessels full of oil to keep your light burning, to keep your light bright, you see. (coughs) So this is a process. So we are being saved. Jesus prepares a place for us and we are being saved. Let's have a quick look at Gospel of John, chapter 14. John 14, verse 1. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See? Isn't that beautiful? Our our groom has gone to prepare a place for us. It's in a heavenly city called Zion. So we are being saved. It's wonderful. We're being saved. Now that point in Jesus' ministry where he comes to his own but his own rejected him so then he goes out to all the world really happened in his ministry as well. And it was the point where He heals the man with the withered hand in Matthew chapter 12, I think it is. We won't go there now, but 
what happens is, is this miracle was done on a Sabbath and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were getting very angry about this guy doing these great things on the Sabbath, breaking their law. And so after that time when he healed that man with the withered hand, it says that they went out and they plotted to kill him. And I think in the Matthew account, it then talks about how this was done to fulfil what the prophet Isaiah says and it quotes from Isaiah about how he goes to the Gentiles. You see, so there's a turning point in Jesus' ministry when he goes to the Gentiles. And that was it, when he did that miracle in the synagogue and healed the man with the withered hand. So we are saved, we're being saved and we will be saved. So one day we will go in to the wedding banquet, we will be united with our, our groom, our husband, Jesus Christ, and then we will be whole. Salvation will be complete. Let's have a look in 1 Corinthians. We get a picture of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this amazing time when we do go to be with the Lord and the door is shut and we are made whole and perfect. We are transformed into the image of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and from verse 45 it says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. <clears throat> As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. How good is that? That's a great promise, isn't it? So here we are in our sinful nature, our flesh, corruptible. It's a pretty sad state to be in. My body's getting older and my hair's falling out. And I'm getting tired. And all these horrible things are happening to me. And it's all sort of going pear-shaped. <laughs> but there is coming this time when I go to be with the Lord and I get a new body. How good is that? That's good, isn't it? Are you all happy about that? I hope you are. I'm happy about that. I'm excited about that because I'm not really too happy with this one. It just doesn't do the things I want it to do. Sometimes my mind thinks like I'm 20 but my body's saying, no, you can't do that. <laughs> it's a terrible place to be. So here, this is what's happening here, you see. This is a promise that we will be made into that image and we'll be like the heavenly man, which is Jesus Christ. Now this I say, brethren, that, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the first trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? It doesn't have a victory. We're the victors because of Christ. How beautiful is that? So we are saved, we're being saved and we will be saved. Now let's turn to the Revelation, chapter 19. End of the book. See, we know how it all ends. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. That's us. We've made ourselves ready. How? By being filled with the word of God to the brim. Amen? By being born again with the word of God and the spirit of God. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How amazing is that? See, that's where we're headed. We're headed for a seven-year wedding feast. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. Now, just quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1. It says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with the hands, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. How beautiful is that? See, that reminds me of Abraham looking for a city not built by the hands of men. He was looking for Zion. Jerusalem hadn't even been built. And that's what we're doing. We're doing exactly what Abraham did. We're looking for a new tent. <clears throat> for in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. How beautiful is that? That's what we're looking forward to. That's the completion of salvation. Now we who has now he who has part who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You see? That's the deposit. We are the bride of Christ. We are going to be 
prepared for a wedding. We are going to have the right garments, robes of righteousness. We will have an incorruptible body. We will be transformed into the image of God. So we are saved, we are being saved and one day we will be saved. Amen? God bless you.